Good morning. <clears throat> I know you think I'm Jeff Campbell, but I'm really not. <laughs> Jeff got sick and lost his voice. So Friday, about 10.30 in the morning, he sent me an email and asked me if I could pinch hit for him. So I started studying madly. <clears throat> so let's pray, and hopefully those people out there will wander in. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, it has been uh, a tradition, I guess, in churches to have Sunday school and to have classes as well as sermons. And Lord, this has been a good thing for your people. I pray that it would be so this morning. And we just pray, Lord, that as your word is powerful and penetrating, that it would be that way for us this morning. I've been penetrated to my good and I pray that you would penetrate these folks of yours with the sword of your spirit. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So I have a question for you. I'd like you to really think about it for a moment. How well have you learned the secret? How well have you learned the secret? The secret of contentment. Paul said that he had learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Let's read Philippians chapter 4, along with some other passages. I want you to see that contentment is a theme, a concept, a goal that was important to the writers of the New Testament, mostly Paul, also the writer to the book of Hebrews. So Philippians 4, 10 to 14 will go. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul is, is surely talking about a financial support from the church to him as he's been in, as he is in prison. He says, not that I speak from want. That would be a noteworthy thing for him to say, being in prison. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. So in addition to this passage, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. And listen to this list. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And here's why. He says, for or because when I am weak, then I am strong. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he didn't use the word in English content, but he used the same concept. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, that's the concept of contentment, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then the writer to Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5, he exhorts his readers, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, here again is the reason, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Many years ago, I was accruing a collection of Puritan paperbacks, and I got one called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. I would highly recommend it to you. And I want to pluck out a little comment by him from sort of in the middle of the book somewhere. He says, now that we have come to grips with the practice, that is, how to learn contentment, it is necessary that we should be humbled in our hearts because of our lack of contentment in the past. For there is no way to set about any duty that you should perform, that you might labor to perform, but first you must be humbled for the lack of it. Therefore, I shall endeavor to get your hearts to be humbled for the lack of this grace. Oh, had I had this grace of contentment, what a happy life I might have lived. What abundance of honor I might have brought to the name of God. How might I have honored my profession? I think he means his profession of faith, not his career. What a great deal of comfort I might have enjoyed. But the Lord knows it has been far otherwise. Oh, how far I have been from this grace of contentment, which has been expounded to me. I have had a murmuring, a vexing, and a fretting heart within me. Every little cross has put me out of temper and out of frame. Oh, the boisterousness of my spirit. What evil God sees in the vexing and fretting of my heart and murmuring 
and repining of my spirit. Oh, that God would make you see it. Now to the end that you might be humbled for lack of it. I shall endeavor in these headings to speak of it. First, I shall set before you the evil of a murmuring spirit. There's more evil in it than you are aware of. Sober words, huh? So this morning, we're going to do a high altitude flyover of the New Testament doctrine of contentment. In his providence, you're here. And in his providence, maybe some are listening later, Jeff lost his voice. And so I'm here. And in his providence, contentment is what we're going to study. So therefore, God wants you to dwell on and learn more the skill and the art of contentment. I am well aware of how far I have lacked. I read this book 20 years ago or 30 or whatever. I didn't read the whole book. I read through it. I would read a paragraph and I went, I got to stop and think and meditate and pray. Then I come back a day later and read another paragraph. Get the book. So look at Philippians 4. In verse 11, Paul says that he learned to be content. The word in Greek learned is manthano. It is connected to mathetes, which is the word for disciple or a learner. So we're going up to Cochrane Hills, right, to make disciples. In fact, I have a t-shirt that my wife made up from, I don't know, 20 years ago for the camp. And it says, a disciple. And it has the camp on the back and the date and everything. So Paul said he learned. So this is something you learn. It's not something that just happens to you. It's a skill. And it's an art. The word content is autarkes. And it, it's, I don't know if Paul borrowed it from the Stoics or not, but the Stoics, it, the word itself means to be sufficient in yourself, to be independent, to be happy with the way things are. The Stoics used it meaning self-reliance. I, I remember watching that movie Gladiator, and it kind of started out with, these Roman soldiers all in a line and the uh, head guy, whatever his title was, he's walking down and then there's all these German hordes over in the forest with all their weird stuff on. And you know what they all say? They're all Stoics. It's a good day to die. <sighs> really? Well, that's the way the Stoics thought. You just, you have everything you need within yourself. Well, Paul elevated this word. And of course, as you, I'm sure, know, he meant 
we are self-sufficient within ourselves because we have Christ. And so he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He used the word know twice. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. So there is a direct connection between contentment and knowing something or some things. There's two words in Greek that are translated know or knowledge. One is oida, which is the word here, and it means to know something um, as a fact, to know it intellectually. The other word is gnosko or epigonosko, and that means to know something by experience. So Paul says, I know I have the information about how to live, get along in humble means and how to live in prosperity. I understand it. I know what's involved. I know the truths that I need. It's not like experiential knowledge. So I could say, I oida, I know that the sun is a ball of fire. I have that information. I know that fact. But I have not experienced it, you know, more than it's, boy, it's hot today. But I can say, Gnosko, I know what good Mexican food is, tastes like. That's knowing by experience. So Paul, like Jeremiah Burroughs, must have struggled and wrestled with being content. He must have struggled with being disheartened and disappointed, feeling like running away and giving up. He may even have been resentful because of the way he was treated by other believers. Things hadn't turned out the way he had hoped. He says, I've learned. It was a process. It took time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which I 12, which I read, Paul lists for us the kind of things he did go through. Remember? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. So in the midst of all of that, insults, persecutions, hardships, in the midst of all of that, he knows something. He came, he knew it, and he applied the knowledge to his thought patterns, his mindset, and he applied them to his feelings. And what did he know? He knew that when he was weak, actually, that's when he was strong. You know why? Because when you know you're weak and you know you need help, and you know it's beyond you, and you can't handle it, then you know you need God. He's the only real help. So contentment is an internal skill of your heart and your mind. It's choosing a perception, a way to look at things, a way to think about things. It's taking thoughts captive, like it says in 2 Corinthians 10. 
It's not just a feeling that happens to you, and if it happens, cool. If it doesn't, oh, well, I'm stuck. You can choose. It's an attitude. Proverbs 23.7 says, as a man thinks, what? So is he. So contentment is the result of an internal process of heart, not external circumstances. We are to be people, people of the book, people of the spirit, people of Christ's family who are not controlled by circumstances, not dominated. Do we struggle? Yes, we struggle. I fail to have contentment too often. And thankfully, having been a Christian for a while, uh, or maybe my wife, you know, says, why are you acting like this? Why is your countenance fallen? And then I start recovering and preaching to myself and I can usually pull out of it without spending too much time in the pit. It is a quiet soul at peace. Psalm 62 says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 37, verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Boy, is that ever good for our time of, in this country, right? In this world. I mean, it's always good. So it's an internal thing. It's an attitude of the heart, the mind. Jeremiah Burroughs suggests that some people can be calm and peaceful, serene on the outside, appearing contented, refraining from discontented talk. Yet inwardly, he says, they are bursting with discontent thoughts and feelings. It can be hidden, it can put on a mask. But real, true Christian contentment is quiet inside, not just outside. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was his attitude? Well, though he was God, he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or you could use the word exploited. He was willing to set aside, which is a great mystery how this happened. He didn't stop being God. He didn't lose his powers or his omniscience, and yet he said he didn't know things. He was content to set aside his divine powers and empty himself and humble himself. And so we are told, have this attitude among yourselves. So contentment 
is a tender-hearted, forbearing way of looking at things. Some people just seem to be, I don't know, they come out of the womb and they're better at that. Other people, mm, not so good. But this is not that. This is not natural. This is supernatural. So if you were to take some clothes out of the dryer on a cold day, or like in our house when my wife washes our sheets on our bed, and it's, you know, January, and our back room doesn't get the heat from the wood stove too much. And so we climb into the bed. In fact, Anita and her sister made some things called, for us called buddies. They're little bags full of some kind of beans. And you stick them in the microwave for three minutes, and you heat them up and put them down by your feet. Cool. No, warm. And uh, so when she dries, washes and dries our sheets, and we put them on the bed, and you crawl in, oh, it's so nice. It's warm. And the sheets are warming your body up. But when you go backpacking and you climb into a cold sleeping bag, your body warms up the bag. That's the way it is with contentment. The warmth comes from the inside, not the outside. Contentment also freely submits, freely submits to God's providence. We've got to look at Job. Linda Spencer said Thursday night that Job is one of her favorite books. And in Job chapter 1, you will remember, Job had been informed one servant after another that he had lost everything including his children. And in verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and had a temper tantrum. No. What does it say? He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Contentment freely submits to God's providence. It's not forced. It's not dragged to it. It freely submits. And as it submits, it rejoices in God's providence. Is that a challenge or what? So Philippians 2.4 says rejoice. Well, that's Philippians 4. Rejoice what? Always. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious. And I say it again. Don't be anxious. Rejoice always. Paul and Silas singing in prison. Contentment, as Job demonstrated, opposes the temptation to blame God for the trial and the disappointment or even blame people, even who have done you wrong. So it submits 
As it submits, it rejoices. And guess what? Contentment does this in every situation, at every moment, every condition. So Paul said in Hebrew, or Philippians 4.12, in any and every circumstance. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul said, if all, I'm content with food and clothing, that's it. If that's all I have, as I think about my house, and we have a sort of under the house area, we, our house is built on a slope, and so we dug out an area down there for storage. Well, my son and his family has a bunch of stuff stored down there, and we have a bunch of stuff stored down there, and it's piled. Not to mention inside the house where we live, in the closets, in the kitchen. We have so much more than food and clothing. Debbie Grenado, some of you will remember. She's doing very well, and she's walking with the Lord. She brought over a man from southern India yesterday to our house, a pastor, and he was telling us about how the people there live. And they live in mud huts with thatched roofs, and they're all sick all the time because they have unclean water and very little food that's contaminated. And they cook outside their house in the dirt street, sitting on the ground, and eat rice every day, and that's it. And I'm thinking, could I be content with just food and clothing? What if I didn't have those warm sheets on my little buddy? So you know what? Content, being content is a mystery. It's a mystery because Christians are the most contented people in the world, and yet they are the most unsatisfied people in the world at the same time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, Paul talked about longing to be clothed with his heavenly body, he said, for indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The Christian is longing. We're longing. Aren't you longing? Don't you long every day for Christ to see him face to face, for him to come back and fix you finally, completely, and to fix this world and make things right. And yet, in the midst of that, we are very unsatisfied with the way things are. And we should be. They're wrong. There's much evil. So, Paul, in this life, learned to be content, yet he was still deeply unsatisfied. 
Psalm 73, Asaph was, demonstrates the same thing. He was very, very unsatisfied. He said he had become like a beast. He was troubled within when he saw the prosperity of the wicked and God was apparently doing nothing. He said, it's vain for me to keep my heart pure. What good does it do? He was, he was very dissatisfied until he came into the sanctuary, until he went into the temple, and he saw all the doctrine that was taught to those Jews through the temple, the colors, all the furniture, all the articles, the whole thing, the white curtain around it, the brazen labor, the altar, the altar of incense, the bread, the table of showbread, the menorah, the candle stand, candle stand. He saw all of that, and then he went, oh, I remember. God's going to hold them accountable. They will disappear in the twinkling of an eye. And so all of a sudden, his discontent turned into contentment because he preached truth to himself. He says, beside you, what do I desire on earth? Nothing. Tell me something. What do you need when you're contented? Nothing. When you are experiencing in your mind and your emotions contentment, you will know, you will feel that you need nothing. Have you ever had a run a little scenario through your mind? I confess I have. What would I do if I won the lottery and I got $10 million? What would I do? And I think about all the things I'd buy for my kids. I'd pay off their mortgages. And I'd buy new tractors for my son. And, you know, I think about all that stuff. Then I think, well, what would I buy? It would be kind of cool to have a new four-wheel drive truck. But do I need it? Nah, I don't need it. My old 95 Dodge is fine. Limping along on 340,000 miles. It's fine. And I always end up the same place. I, I have way more than I need. I don't need anything. So when you're content, you have that wonderful, peaceful sense of, I don't need anything. And it's happy. It's very happy to be there. Jeremiah Burroughs says that Contentment is gained not by addition, but by subtraction. When I first read that, I went, what are you talking about? And here's what he says, and paraphrase. The world gains brief contentments by addition. Getting something you want. Getting more. Getting higher pay. Getting a newer car. He didn't say that, but get the idea. So in the cosmos, the system of people and things and ideas that are against God and against truth, the only way to gain a brief little spit of contentment is to have your possessions and your experiences 
raised up to meet your desires. He says Christian contentment comes by subtracting from your earthly desires so that your circumstances and your desires are equal. So from putting to death the flesh, from setting your mind on heavenly things, things above, taking your mind off of the pleasures the world offers, not wanting those, not needing those, then your circumstances, if you have an abundance like most of us do, you thank God for it and you enjoy it. We don't feel guilty about it, but we know we don't need it. And we elevate our circumstances, our, our, our desires for the things of the world to meet our circumstances. Then you have contentment. You can chew on that one for a while. The second point that we want to look at is the evil of discontent. God sees it as rebellion. In Exodus chapter 16, we read the whole congregation of the people of Israel, don't miss this word, grumbled, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That is evil discontent. That is rebellion in God's eyes. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram actually led a rebellion. And they grumbled too. They grumbled against Moses. And their grumbling and complaining and whining and expressing their discontent. You know what God did? Do you remember what God did? He opened up the earth. He literally opened up the ground and swallowed up those three families and their tents and everything they had. Down they went. And then he closed it back up again. Wow. That was a pretty uh, remarkable intervention in the natural course of things. And it was because they were expressing evil discontent. Discontent, which is evil. God hates it. It's a mark of ungodliness, discontent. You know what godliness is? Some people say it's God-likeness. It's devotion to God. It's living to please him. In Isaiah 53, 7, Jesus is our example, and it says he opened not his mouth when he was oppressed and afflicted. So he expressed no discontent, even though God was pleased to crush him. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. The context there is warning against false teachers who supposed that godliness was a means of gain. So discontent is 
the opposite of godliness. So when you're discontent, just look in the mirror and saying, you ungodly person. It's also contrary to grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor, as you know, for those who are under condemnation, those who have forsaken God, those who are unable to merit his favor. And all of God's benefits, starting with salvation and then sanctification and all of the rest, everything that we have is his gift. It's all. Discontent discounts and minimizes the fabulous abundance of God's grace. Of his kindness, we have received what? We sing it. Grace upon grace. We have an abundance of treasure to go to, to get all we need. So if you have Christ, if you're in Christ, you have him and he has you. We already possess everything. Therefore, discontent is just plain evil. It's bad. And it provokes God to anger. Number 16 is that example of the discontenters, the grumblers, and when God opened up the ground and swallowed them up. In addition to that, there is much of the spirit of Satan in it. You say, what? Yes. There is much of the spirit of Satan in it. Isaiah 14 pictures Satan in rebellion because he was discontented. We say pride was the, the core of Satan's sin. That's absolutely right. But the other side of the coin of pride is discontent. He was the anointed cherub. It may be that there have been three cherubim, and Satan was one of them. There's Michael and Gabriel, and Satan may have been the third. And yet, he was called the star of the morning, anointed cherub. He wanted more. He wanted to be higher than God. He wasn't content with being an amazing, amazing being. So when we lack contentment in the circumstances and conditions in which God has placed us, there's some of Satan's heart in that. And discontent is evil because it always involves confusion and anxiety. They're inevitable. You see, discontent makes us irrational to a degree. The gap between our desire, 
our desires and our circumstances appears to be unfairly large to the distorted view that we have when we're discontent. We forget all his benefits while he says, forget not all his benefits. And we are so troubled that in our cluelessness, all we see is our perceived lack. And we dwell on it. We don't do what Philippians, what Paul said in Philippians 4.8 when he tells us what to think about, what kind of things to think. So the third section this morning, how to learn contentment. Nothing new here. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Grab yourself by the collar and say, now listen here, self. This is the truth. What you're thinking, what you're feeling is not reality. It may be real, but it's not reality. Preach to yourself of the greatness of the mercies that you have. All that you deserve that God has rescued you from. Expound these truths to yourself. Point the finger in your face and scold yourself. So preach to yourself to remind yourself that God has already bestowed on you many, many mercies. James 5.11, you've heard the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Count up the ways he's been merciful to you. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls God the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Romans 9, Paul says that God has mercy on whomever he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he will in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So why am I among the vessels of mercy? Why did he choose me and not somebody else? Somebody I've prayed for for years and they're still stiff-arming me. Why did he choose me? How can there be any reason for discontent being a vessel of mercy? So preach to yourself. Remind yourself that everyone experiences changing circumstances, trials, afflictions, being wronged, reviled, rejected, misunderstood. Preach to yourself to resist the temptation to take on the victim mentality like Elijah did. I'm the only one. There's nobody else but me. Poor me. I'd rather just die, take my life. 
resist the temptation to ask God the why question. You know, some people, I've heard this often. Some people try to deal with their, their hard circumstances by saying to themselves, well, God's trying to teach me something through this. That's true, I'm sure. He's always trying to teach us something. And then they try to figure out what God is trying to teach them. Well, let's see, he's trying to teach me such and such. They might be right. But being content with your difficult circumstances, you don't need to figure out what God is trying to teach you. You know why? Because we always know what God is trying to teach us. All you got to do is open your Bible, and you will know exactly what God is trying to teach you at any moment. We should preach to ourselves that we have only a little time in this world. You see, discontentment drains your emotions, your motivation. It leads you to feel like giving up. It's like Solomon's discontent with life's emptiness that led him to see and to look at life under the sun as if God was out of the picture. And what did he conclude? Chasing the wind. Whatever you do, you'll never get it. It's vanity, it's emptiness, it's folly. Just might as well quit. Thankfully, Solomon came back to reality at the end of the book. Learn to reject this kind of thinking. Take it captive to Bible doctrine. And then preach to yourself to remind yourself, to remember. God's all about us remembering. He was all about that with Israel. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. Paul reminded Timothy to remind his folks. Remember that a lot of things to remember, right? But one thing we can remember is that there have been many godly people before us who have been in very, very difficult, hard circumstances. And they've learned to be content in the midst of those. Jacob was cheated by Laban, who deceived him by giving him Leah instead of Rachel. And he had to serve another seven years for Rachel. Yet he was content. And those seven years seemed to him but a few moments. Moses raised up to become the, probably the next pharaoh. And then he fled, and he was 40 years. Just imagine going from all that splendor and all that majesty and all that power, and he runs out into the wilderness and the desert, and what does he do? He spends the next 40 years taking care of somebody else's goats. That's it. They're not even his goats. Until he was finally ready to serve Yahweh. Luther, the leader of the Reformation, a great man before kings and princes, said when he came close to death, Lord, I have neither house nor lands nor estate to leave anything to my wife or my children, but I commit them to thee. He had nothing. 
but he was content that God would take care of them. Preach to yourself that we used to be content prior to our conversion. We used to be content with the world. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And in the midst of that, we were fat and happy. At least some of the time. So, if we were content with the world, should we not now forsake the world's lusts and be content in what we have in Christ? 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Remember what love is. Love is desire. Love is a desire. Loving God is a desire to know him, to please him, to obey him, to be close to him. When you love your spouse, your love is a desire to be with them, to share experiences with them, to bring benefit to them, to serve them. It's a desire and the corruption of it is to love the world, which kills contentment. Remind yourself that we did not give glory to God before, even when we got what we wanted. Psalm 106, verse 15, in the New King James Version, says he gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they wanted. They got what they wanted. It's another translation to say a wasting disease. Same thing, if you have a wasting disease, you're pretty lean. So they, they got what they wanted, but they weren't satisfied. They weren't happy. So even though we got what we wanted prior to conversion, we were still empty. We still, as Jesus said in John 3, loved the darkness hated the light, would not come to the light. Remember, God has done you good. David said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Where? In the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So, how do you learn contentment? You preach to yourself. 
preach truth in the place of lies, error. And to learn contentment, you must discipline your mind. It's a matter of discipline. You train the way you think. You choose what you think. You don't let your circumstances and people herd you into a corner. So you apply the truth to make your heart steady. Epaphras prayed for the Colossian church. And he prayed, Paul says he prayed that they might stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Stand, that's steady. Stay the course. Do not grasp the world. Discipline yourself. In, in the Old Testament, the Israelites failed to drive out the Canaanites, right? And so we read that they learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. You remember the old story about how you catch a monkey? You've all heard it, right? You get a coconut, you put a hole in the coconut of the appropriate size, you chain it to a tree so the monkey can stick his hand, you put a little shiny object in there, so the monkey can slide his hand into the, the coconut, right? And then he grabs that thing, and as soon as he's got it, and now his hand is a fist, and it won't fit through the hole. Then you walk up and you just pick him up. You got him. You have to discipline yourself to not grasp the world. You have to discipline yourself in your thinking to focus on living by God's commands. So Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You could say, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not be discontent. Live by faith, not by sight. When you look at things the way they are, that's not really the way they are. That's what happened to Asaph. Second Corinthians, Paul said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So discipline yourself, labor, work at it to be spiritually minded, to set your mind on the things above. Colossians 3. Take your thinking captive. And don't promise great things to yourself. God said to Jeremiah, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Choose a good interpretation of God's providences. Don't ask the why questions. I don't, don't even really spend too much time asking, you know, what you think God is trying to teach you. Just go to the scripture and you'll know what he's trying to teach you always. Do not be influenced by the opinions of others. 
Don't be a people pleaser. Don't try to talk and think the way you think they want you to think and be. Paul says, I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And finally, do not be excessively taken up with the comforts of the world. All the comforts of the world, all the achievements, all the, accomplishment, the accomplishments are just temporary at best. And as Solomon found out, vanity of vanities. They will fail to give us lasting comfort, satisfaction. Seeking them, you can enjoy them, but don't pursue them as a treasure. Don't pursue them as something that's vital because it's futile. Beating your head against a wall. So let it not be said of me or of you, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let us not be those who are praying for contentment, reading books on contentment, but not gaining any skill in it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us all that we need to be content. Lord, train us through your word and through your spirit. Train me, Lord. I need so much more to gain this, to learn the skill of contentment. And I pray, Lord, that you would have spurred your people on this morning to learn contentment for your glory, to exalt you as being the only thing that we need, the only one that we need. Lord, exalt yourself in our church in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our businesses. Let it be seen by others that we are so full of you and so satisfied that we are not shaken, we are not troubled by circumstances. Thank you, Lord, that this is not too hard for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.